0: Chapter four of the Trail of the Hawk This LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by Mike Vendetti Mike Vendetti dot com Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis Chapter four While Carl prepared for Gertie Cowell's party by pressing his trousers with his mother's flat iron while he blacked his shoes and took his weekly sponge bath, he was perturbed by the partnership with Eddie Clem and the longing for the world of motors, and some anxiety as to how he could dance at the party when he could not dance. He clumped up the new stone steps of the Cowles' house carelessly, not unusually shy, ready to tell Gertie what he thought of her treatment of Eddie. Then the front door opened, and an agonized Carl was smothered by politeness, his second cousin. "'Lena, the Cowles' hired girl,' was opening the door, stiff and uncomfortable in a cap, a black dress, and a small frilly apron that dangled on her boniness like a lace kerchief pinned on a broom handle. Murray Cowles rushed up. He was in evening clothes. Behind Murray, Mrs. Cowles greeted Carl with thawed majesty. "'We are so glad to have you, Carl. Won't you take your things off in the room at the head of the stairs?' An affable introduction to Howard Griffin, also in evening clothes, was poured on Carl like soothing balm, said Griffin. "'Mighty glad to meet you, Erickson. Ray told me you'd make a ripping sprinter. The captain of the track team will be on the lookout for you when you get to Plato. Of "'Course you're going to go there. The U of M is too big. You'll do something for old Plato. Wish I could. But all I can do is warble like a darn dicky-bird. Have a cigarette.' They're just starting to dance. Come on, old man. Come on, Ray. Carl was drawn downstairs and instantly precipitated into a dance regarding which he was sure only that it was a waltz, a two-step, or something else. It filled with glamour the Cowles Library, the only parlor in Jerillamon that was called a library, and the only one with a fireplace or polished hardwood floor. Grandeur was in the red... Lamicans over the doors and windows, the bead potray, a hand painted coal shuttle, small round paintings of flowers set in black velvet, an enormous black walnut bookcase with fully a hundred volumes, and the two lamps of green mottled shades and wrought iron frames, set on photographed leather skins, brought from New York by Gertie. The light was courtly on the polished floor. Adelaide Benner, a new Adelaide in chiffon over yellow satin, and patent-leather slippers grinned at him and ruthlessly towed him into the tide of dancers in the spell of society no one seemed to remember eddy Clem. adelaide did not mention the incident carl found himself bumping into others continually apologizing to adelaide and the rest and not caring for he saw a vision each time he turned toward the south end of the room he beheld gertie cowles glorified she was out of ankle-length dresses she looked her impressive eighteen in a foamy long white mull that showed her soft throat a red rose was in her brown hair she reclined in a big chair of leather and oak and smiled the gentlest especially when carl bobbed his head to her he had always taken her as a matter of course she had no age no sex no wonder That afternoon she had been a negligible bit of jolly to be accused of snobbery toward Eddie Clem, and always to be watched suspiciously, lest she spring some New York airs on us. Gertie had craftily seemed unchanged after New York enlightenment till now. Here she was, suddenly grown up and beautiful, haloed with a peculiar magic which distinguished her from the rest of the world. She's the only one that would ride in that horseless carriage when I get it, Carl exulted. That must be a train, that thing she's got on. After the dance, he disposed of Adelaide Benner as though she were only a sister. He hung over the back of Gertie's chair and urged, I was awful sorry to hear you were sick. Say, you look wonderful tonight. I'm so glad you could come to my party. Oh, I must speak to you about do you suppose you would ever get very very angry at poor me-me so bad sometimes he cut an awkward little caper to show his aplomb and assured her i guess probably i'll kill you some time all right no listen carl i'm dreadfully serious i hope you didn't go and get dreadfully angry at me about eddie Clem. i know eddie's good friends with you and i did want to have him come to my party But, you see, it was this way. Mr. Griffin is our guest. He likes you a lot, Carl. Isn't he a dandy fellow? I guess Adelaide and Hazel are just crazy about him. I think he's just as swell as the men in New York. Eddie and he didn't get along very well together. It isn't anybody's fault, I don't guess. I thought Eddie would be lots happier if he didn't come. Don't you see? Oh, no, of course. Oh, yes, I see. Sure. I can see how— Say, Gertie. I never did know you could look so grown up. I suppose now you'll never play with me. I want you to be a good friend of mine always. We always have been awfully good friends, haven't we? Yes. Do you remember how we ran away? And how the black Dutchman chased us? Her sweet and complacent voice was so cheerful that he lost his awe of her new magic and chortled. And how we used to play pum-pum-pull away. She delicately leaned her cheek on a fingertip and sighed. "'Yes, I wonder if we shall ever be so happy as when we were young. I don't believe you care to play with me so much now.' "'Oh, gee, Gertie, I like to.' The shyness was on him again. "'Say, are you feeling better now? You're all over being sick?' "'Almost now. I'll be back in school right after vacation.' It's you that don't want to play, I guess. I can't get over that long white dress. It makes you look so, you know, so, uh, they're going to dance again. I wish I felt able to dance. Let me sit and talk to you, Gertie, instead of dancing. I suppose you're dreadfully bored, though, and you could be down at the billiard parlor. Yes, I could not. Eddie Clem in his fancy vest wouldn't have much chance alongside of Griffin in his dress suit. Of course, I don't want to knock Eddie, him and me, are pretty good sidekicks. Oh, no, I understand. It's just that people have to go with their own class, don't you think? Oh, yes, sure. I do think so myself, Carl said it with a spurious society manner. In Gertie's aristocratic presence, he desired to keep aloof from all vulgar persons. Of course, I think we ought to make allowances for Eddie's father, Carl, but then she sighed with the responsibility of noblesse oblige, and Carl gravely sighed with her. He brought a stool and sat at her feet. Immediately he was afraid that everyone was watching him. Ray Cowles bawled to them as he passed in the waltz. Watch out for that Carl, Gert he's a regular baddocks carl's scalp prickled but he tried to be very offhand in remarking you must have gotten that dress in new york didn't you why haven't you ever told me about new york you've hardly told me anything at all well i like that and you've never been near me to give me a chance guess i was kind of scared you wouldn't care much for Joliman after new york why, Carl, you mustn't say that to me. Didn't mean to hurt your feelings, gertie honestly, it didn't. I was just joking. I didn't think you'd take me seriously. As though I could forget my old friends even in New York I didn't think that straight. Please tell me about New York. That's the place all right, Jiminy. Wouldn't I like to go there? I wish you could have been there, Carl. We had such fun in my school. There weren't any boys in it, but we— No boys in it? Why, how's that? Why, it was just for girls. I see, he said fatuously, completely satisfied. We did have the best times, Carl. I must tell you about one awfully naughty thing, Carrie. She was my chum in school, and I did. There was a stock company on 23rd Street, and we were all crazy about the actors, especially Clemence de And one afternoon, Carrie told the principal she had a headache, and I asked if I could go home with her and read her the assignments for the next day. They called the lessons assignments there. And they thought I was such a meek little country mouse that I would never fib. And so they let us go. And what do you think we did? She had the tickets for the two orphans at the stock company. You've never seen the two orphans, have you? It's perfectly splendid. I used to weep my eyes out over it. And afterward, we went and waited outside, right near the stage entrance. And what do you think? The leading man, Clemence de went right by us as near as I am to you. Oh, Carl, I wish you could have seen him. Maybe he wasn't the handsomest thing. He had the blackest, curliest hair, and he wore a thumb ring. I don't think much about all these ham fetters, growled Carl. Actors always go broke and have to walk back to Chicago. Don't you think it'd be better to be a civil engineer or something like that instead of having to slick up your hair and carry a cane? They're just dudes. Why, of course, Carl, you silly boy. You don't suppose I'd take Clement seriously do you, you silly boy. I'm not a boy. I didn't mean it that way. She sat up, touched his shoulder, and sank back. He blushed with bliss and the fear that someone had seen as she continued. I always think of you as just as old as I am. We always will be, won't we? Yes. Now you must go to talk to Doris Carlson. Poor thing, she always is a wallflower. However much he thought of common things as he left her, Beyond those common things was the miracle that Gertie had grown into the one perfect, divinely ordained woman and that he would talk to her again. He'd asked the Virginia reel. Instead of clumping sulkily through the steps as at other parties, he heeded Adelaide Brennan's lesson and watched Gertie in the hope that she would see how well he was dancing. He shouted to the man that they play, "'Skip to Malou!' and cried down the shy girls who giggled that they were too old for the childish party game he howled without prejudice in favor of any particular key the ancient world's rats in the sugar bowl two by two rats in the belfry two by two rats in the sugar bowl two by two skip to my, my darlin in a nonchalant company of the smarter young bachelors upstairs he smoked a cigarette but he sneaked away. He paused at the bend in the stairs below him was Gertie silver-gowned, wonderful. He wanted to go down to her. He would have given up his chance for a motor-car to be able to swagger down like an eddy clam, for the Carl Ericson who sailed his ice-boat over the inch-thick ice was timid now. He poked into the library, and in a nausea of discomfort he conversed with Mrs. Cowles, Mrs. Cowles, doing the conversing. Are you going to be a Republican or a Democrat, Carl? asked the forbidding lady. Yes, um," mumbled Carl, peering over at Gertie's throne where Ben Rusk was being cultured. I hope you're having a good time. We always wish our young friends to have an especially good time at Gertrude's parties, Mrs. Cowles sniffed and bowed away. Carl sat beside Adelaide Penner in the decorous and giggling circle that ringed the room waiting for the refreshments. He was healthily interested in devouring maple ice cream and chocolate layer cake, but all the while he was spying on the group gathering about Gertie, Ben Rusk, Howard Griffin, and Joe Jordan. He took the most strategic precaution lest one think that he wanted to look at Gertie, made such ponderous efforts to prove he was carefree that everyone knew something was the matter. Ben Rusk was taking no part in the gaiety of Howard and Joe. The serious man of letters was not easily led into paths of frivolity. Carl swore to himself, Ben's the only guy I know that's got any delicate feelings. He appreciates how Gertie feels when she's sick, poor girl. He don't make a goat of himself like Joe, or maybe he's got a stomachache. "'Post office!' cried Howard Griffin to the room at large. "'Come on!' We'll all of us going to be kids again and play post office. Who's the first girl wants to be kissed? The idea giggled Adelaide Banner. Me for Adelaide bawled Joe Jordan. Oh Joe, bet I kiss Gertie from Irving Lamb. The idea just as if we were children. He must think we're kids again. Shamey, Winnie wants to be kissed and Carl won't. I don't either, so there think it's awful. Better kiss Gertie." Carl was furious at all of them as they strained their shoulders forward from their chairs and laughed. He asked himself, haven't these galoots got any sense to speak so lightly of kissing Gertie? He stared at the smooth rounding of her left cheek below the cheekbone till it took a separate identity, and its white softness filled the room. Ten minutes afterward Playing post-office, he was facing Gertie in the semi-darkness of the sitting-room, authorized by the game to kiss her, shut in with his divinity. She took his hand. Her voice was crooning. "'Are you going to kiss me terribly hard?' He tried to be gracefully mocking. "'Oh, yes, sure. I'm going to eat you alive.' She was waiting. He wished that she would not hold his hand. Within he groaned, "'Gee, whiz, I feel foolish?' he croaked. "'Do you feel better now? You'll catch more cold in here, won't you? There's kind of a drought. Let me look at this window.' Crossing to the obviously tight window, he ran his finger along the edge of the sash with infinite care. He trembled. In a second, now, he had to turn and make light of the lips which he would fain have approached with ceremony pompous and lingering. Gertie flopped into a chair, laughing. "'I believe you're afraid to kiss me, Freddy Cat. "'You'll never be a squire of dames, like those actors are. "'All right for you.' "'I'm not afraid,' he piped. "'Even his prized semi-bass voice had deserted him. "'He rushed to the back of his chair and leaned over, "'confused, determined, hastily kissed her. "'The kiss landed on the tip of her cold nose, "'and the whole party was tumbling in, crying. "'Time's up. You can't hug her all evening.' did you see he kissed her on the nose did he oh time's up can't try it again joe jordan in the van was dancing fantastically scraping his forefinger at carl in token of disgrace the riotous crowd gertie and carl among them fluttered out again to show that he had not minded the incident of the misplaced kiss carl had to be very loud and merry in the library for a few minutes but when the game of post office was over and mrs cowles asked ray to turn down the lamp in the sitting-room carl insisted i'll do it mrs cowles i'm near and ray and bolted he knew that he was wicked in not staying in the library and continuing his duties to the party he had to crowd into a minute all his agonizing and be back at once it was beautiful in the stilly sitting-room away from the noisy crowd to hear Love's heart beating. He darted to the chair where Gertie had sat and guiltily kissed its arm. He tiptoed to the table, blew out the lamp, remembered that he should only have turned down the wick, tried to raise the chimney, stanched his handkerchief, dropped it, groaned, picked up the handkerchief, raised the chimney, put it on the table, searched his pockets for a match, found it, dropped it, picked it up from the floor, dropped his knife from his pocket as he stooped, felt itchy about the scalp picked up the knife relighted the lamp exquisitely adjusted the chimney and again blew out the flame and swore as darkness whirled into the room again the vision of gertie came nearer then he understood his illness and gasped great jumping jupiter on a high mountain i guess i'm in love me The party was breaking up, each boy, as he accompanied a girl from the yellow lamplight into the below-zero cold, shouted and scuffled the snow to indicate that there was nothing serious in his attentions, and immediately tried to maneuver his girl away from the others. Mrs. Cowles was standing in the hall, not hurrying the guests away, you understand, but perfectly resigned to accepting any farewells. When Gertie, moving gently among them, with little sounds of pleasure, Pinned carl in a corner and demanded are you going to see someone home i suppose you'll forget poor me completely now i will not i wanted to tell you what ray and mr griffin said about plato and about being lawyers isn't it nice you'll know them when you go to plato yes it'll be great mr griffin's going to be a lawyer and maybe ray will too and why don't you think about being one you can get to be a judge and know all the best people it would be lovely refining influences they thats i couldn't never be a high-class lawyer like griffin will said carl his head on one side much pleased you silly boy of course you could i think you've got just as much brains as he has and ray says they all look up to him even in plato and i don't see why plato isn't just as good of course it isn't as large, but it's so select, and the faculty can give you so much more individual attention, and I don't see why it isn't every bit as good as Yale and Michigan and all those eastern colleges. Howard, Mr. Griffin, he says that he wouldn't ever have thought of being a lawyer, only a girl with such a good influence with him. And if you get to be a famous man, too, maybe I'll have been just a teeny-weeny bit of an influence, too, won't I? Oh, yes. I must get back now and say good-bye to my guests. Good-night, Carl." I'm going to study. You just watch me. And if I do get to go to Plato— Oh, gee, you always have been a good influence. He noticed that Doris Carson was watching them. Well, I've got to be going. I've had a peach of a time. Good-night. Doris Carson was expectantly waiting for one of the boys to see her home. But Carl guiltily stole up to Ben Rusk and commanded, Let's hike, Fatty. Let's take a walk. Something big to tell you. End of chapter 4